Welcome back to The Re-Education. Today's monologue is a look at the expiration of Henry Kissinger after a century. My guest is Tevi Troy, back for a third time to discuss Kissinger's legacy, as well as his latest trip to Israel and the state of the rot at America's most expensive universities. Kissinger stayed in the game just to juice his stats, okay? When you look at the season splits, Cheney's numbers were better. Not to mention, Kissinger came in after Vietnam started. I mean, he was chasing wars the way Durant chases rings, you know? And anyone can join a super team, but Cheney built his wars from the ground up. I mean, he carried George W. Bush on his back. Also, how can Kissinger be the war crimes goat when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, you an idiot. <laughs> That's what makes him the goat, you moron. Do you know how good a war criminal you have to be to win a peace prize for wars? You escalator? The dude's got the numbers and the hardware. Count the rings, bitch. Okay, okay, okay. So that was the Daily Show segment on whether Henry Kissinger or Dick Cheney was the Michael Jordan of war criminals, the goat. This idea that a towering statesman of the 20th century, a man of history, is in reality a supervillain is what the performative left in 2023 considers sophisticated. It's a new conventional wisdom of sorts, stunting once interesting institutions like Comedy Central's Daily Show, not to mention millennial and Gen Z online opinion in general, it seems. The only notable thing to say about the life of probably America's greatest diplomat is that he should have been hauled before the Hague and never well, I don't bring all of this up to say that Kissinger's legacy was spotless. I'm also not arguing that Kissinger's policies did not, in some cases, contribute evil and harm to the world. They did, in some cases. Rather, this view that what I want to say about somebody like Kissinger is that he's a war criminal, it's just so simplistic. The faux intellectualism. That's what I dislike so much about this easy moral dismissal of Kissinger's legacy, the substitution of hyperbole and slogan for analysis. But anyway, since we're here, the short version of the Kissinger as war criminal argument goes like this. Henry Kissinger was responsible for expanding the war in Vietnam after his boss, Richard Nixon, campaigned in 1968 on a secret plan to end it. As such, Kissinger approved the secret bombing of Cambodia because it was officially denied by the Pentagon when it began, it was known as a secret bombing, though it is kind of bizarre if you think about it to say that any bombing could be a secret, given the loud noise that accompanies the explosion. Anyway, the secret bombing set into motion a series of events that destabilized Cambodia's monarchy, leading to the rise of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, who would purge his nation of internal critics, dissidents, intellectuals, literally sending people to concentration camps if they wore glasses. Kissinger's expansion of the war, this argument says helped pave the way for a genocide. Now, I should say I don't agree with the substance of this rather caricatured history, but it has been a potent talking point for nearly 50 years. Anyway, here is Kissinger's response to this line of argument from 60 Minutes in 1999. The secret bombing of Cambodia. Do you regret this today? No. After what happened in Cambodia? No, what happened in Cambodia. What happened is that Nixon and Kissinger expanded the Vietnam War into neighboring Cambodia to wipe out enemy sanctuaries. But the mission failed and the Cambodian government collapsed. 
Kissinger's critics say that paved the way for Pol Pot and his slaughter of one million Cambodians. I do not accept the proposition that you can base four divisions on the soil of a country, kill 500 Americans a week, and that the United States cannot react to this because six years down the road, some intellectuals can construct a theory by which anything that happened after that date is due to that event. At this point, I think Kissinger does have the better argument. In a moment when we have graduates and students and professors at some of our most expensive colleges insisting that Israel's response to the mass shooters and gang rapists of Hamas is itself a genocide, well, I'm wary of taking the word of these illiterates when it comes to Kissinger. That said, we at the education do not allow our adversaries to do our thinking for us. And here I think it's worth sharing a more serious critique of Kissinger than the earnest bleeding of Michelle Wolf's Daily Show. I am talking now about the great Christopher Hitchens. So Hitch's argument is a little different, and I think it does have some merit when it comes to this Vietnam question. And it starts with the fact that Kissinger, and, you know, we should say with Nixon's approval, reached out to the Vietnamese delegation, the South Vietnamese delegation, at the Paris peace talks in 1968 on behalf of Nixon. And he urged the delegation not to take the deal on offer. He would say, privately say, that Saigon would get a better deal under Nixon. And this, by the way, undermined the official policy of the Lyndon Johnson administration. And, you know, the, the negotiations were sort of parallel tracked to the election in 68 as well. And one could say that the failure of the peace talks in 68 might have been one of the factors, there are a lot of factors, as to why Humphrey lost to Nixon that year. Anyway, here is Hitch in 2001 kind of expanding on this point. At the very latest, they knew that it was unwinnable. They knew they'd deceived Congress and the American people to get into it. They were looking for a way out. They had a way out in Paris in 68. And Mr. Johnson and Mr. Humphrey, who'd both been very hawkish, were willing to take it. At that point, the South Vietnamese pull out at the last, very, very last minute, the day before the election, ruining the talks, collapsing the re-election of the uh, Democratic ticket. And the war is persisted with for another four years, maybe five, um, and then ended by Nixon and Kissinger on exactly the same terms, in effect, as the um, Democrats have been offering in Paris originally. So that what you have to imagine, and this is the, the gravamen, if you like, of what I say, um, in the piece, is that the, all the people who died in that intervening period had their lives deliberately thrown away. All right, so Hitchens's argument that the that by 68, everybody knew that Vietnam was unwinnable. I mean, that was true to a point. There was the Pentagon analyst, Daniel Ellsberg, who we've talked about in the Church and Deep State episodes. He certainly concluded that in his secret history of the war, that he ended up leaking to the Times that it was unwinnable by 68. Privately, Johnson's defense secretary... Robert McNamara also thought by 68 the war was not winnable. Ditto for Senator Bobby Kennedy, who was uh, murdered during the primaries that year in 68, as he sought the Democratic nomination. But not everybody thought the war was unwinnable. And there were some who thought that if there was the right strategy of counterinsurgency, you know, the United States could wipe out the Viet Cong and create a kind of enough buffer room to have a free South Vietnam at least coexist with communist North Vietnam, and I would put William Colby in that category and lots of other people who were fighting the war. William Colby, of course, was the, at the time, senior CIA advisor to the South Vietnamese counterinsurgency, and he would later rise to become the CIA director. Okay, so I would say Hitch was wrong that there really wasn't a consensus position on the winability of Vietnam in 68, but Hitchens was absolutely right 
that the peace deal that Kissinger eventually did get and win a Nobel Peace Prize for was pretty much the same deal that was on offer in 1968 in Paris. All right. I bring all of this up today not to adjudicate Kissinger's strategy for Vietnam. We don't have the time in this monologue to go through his entire career in public service. So I also will not be weighing the consequences of a secret policy in Chile that ultimately led to a CIA-supported military coup there or his decision to give Indonesia's regime a green light for its brutality in East Timor. These are very serious matters that deserve far more time than I really have today. Rather, I bring this up because if you were to believe many of our elites today, you'd think that Kissinger would be about as popular as childhood cancer in the 1970s when he was overseeing foreign policy for Presidents Nixon and Ford. Kissinger's strategy to expand the war in Vietnam was as well known as it was unpopular at the time. Keep in mind, he is pursuing this strategy after Ellsberg leaks the Pentagon Papers. It was in part Kissinger's idea to bug the psychiatrist's office for Ellsberg and to kind of have, you know, dig up dirt on this guy that led to the creation of the plumbers, which then, you know, the rest is history and became the Watergate break-in. Anyway, Kissinger was, of course, the closest and most recognizable advisor to the most loathed politician of the era, that's Richard Nixon, and yet Henry Kissinger, not just in the 1970s, really throughout his entire career in public life, for the most part, kind of a superstar. In an era when American elites flirted with radical chic, Mr. Deep State himself was an A-lister. You know, the newspapers, People Magazine, would write about his dating life. Newsweek once ran a cover story featured a comic of Kissinger in tights and a cape under the banner, Super K, like he was Superman. I mean, this is the era when every journalist wants to be Woodward and Bernstein taking down Nixon. And yet, here's Kissinger, you know, never gets disinvited to the cocktail parties. He became a part of the culture. On Saturday Night Live, John Belushi donned a wig and did his best deep German accent for a spoof of Barbara Wawa. Here's a clip you say was the high point of your tenure as Secretary of State? Well, I would say the 19, in 1973, when I won the Nobel Peace Prize for ending the, the uh, Vietnam War. And the low point? I'd say uh, 1975, when the uh, Vietnam War ended. <laughs> so how did Kissinger do it? How was he able to avoid public disgrace? Why was he never kicked off the island known as Washington, D.C. Because until Kissinger's final days, you know, he rubbed shoulders with the most powerful people in Washington and New York, not to mention Beijing and Moscow. Well, there are a few explanations. But the main answer is that Henry Kissinger had an extremely rare combination of skills. He was both a deep thinker and intellectual, and at the same time, a ruthless and master flatterer. These two qualities really don't go together. Most geniuses do not need to flatter anyone. They are the ones who are accustomed to being flattered. And by the same token, most people who master the dark arts of suck-uppery develop these skills because they do not have the luxury and good fortune of being a genius. But once in a generation or two, you find someone who excels at both. And that person was Henry Kissinger. And in this respect, I think a parallel to Kissinger might be Rucker Park basketball legend Pee Wee Kirkland, who was widely considered in the late 60s and early 70s to be one of the greatest street basketball players in all of New York, 
he dominated Rucker Park basketball tournaments. There's a great story about how he, he would he would show up to these beautiful Rolls Royce and you know just show up in his gym gear ready to go and just torch people. Anyway, he he even got a contract at one point to play for the Chicago Bulls. But he also, at the same time, in addition to being this dazzling hooper, he was an extraordinary drug trafficker, right up there with Frank Lucas and others in the sort of legendary kingpins of Harlem in the 1970s. And he chose this life of crime eventually over the NBA. So it's rare that a transcendent athlete would also have that ruthless cunning to build a drug empire. But Kirkland was such a man. So like Pee Wee, as the song we just heard a clip from, from the clips, Kissinger was also a legend in two games. So let's start with the genius part. I don't need to dwell too much on this. As a young man in 1950, when he was only 35 or 36, Kissinger wrote for the Council on Foreign Relations while he was a Harvard professor, a small book, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, and it popularized many of the denser theories that we now take for granted, the concepts such as ladders of escalation with the Soviet Union, idea of a limited nuclear war. And the book was a major hit and gave him a profile outside of Harvard and academia and inside Washington. Kissinger's ideas were influential not only with Republicans, but also with John F. Kennedy and the Camelot White House. You know, he, he became close with New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller because of the book. After his time in public service, Kissinger would write some superb memoirs of his time working for Nixon and Ford. So intellectually, Kissinger had top-notch talent for both writing and understanding international relations. But he would not be who he was if he was just a brilliant student of power. Kissinger changed the world because he was also a cunning servant of power. And here is where we must discuss his ability to manipulate people through guile and flattery. Oh, Mr. President. Hi, Henry. How are you? Okay. I didn't have really have anything. I just wanted to call you to tell you I was thinking of... Oh, sure. Well, that's fine, Henry. Now you get on with your business and I'll, I'll work. Don't you worry. Don't you? Well, I have no, no question about it. Yeah. 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 Got some awful tough calls to make. Well, it's we'll make a painful one, but I, I know it's going to come out for the best. <laughs> well, you know how it is. Uh, uh, there's uh, still some rough water ahead, and we're just going to have... Well, Mr. President, no one can undo the achievement. None of these packs of jackals. Well, look, and, and in the end... The achievements that are... And in the end, now, that's not uh, in the end. That was, of course, Kissinger and Nixon. It was April 29, 1973 two days before Nixon would fire his chief of staff, H.R. Bob Haldeman, and another close aide, Ehrlichman, for their roles in Watergate and the Watergate cover-up. 1973 really was the year that everything begins to unravel for Nixon, and it's also the year that Kissinger wins the Nobel Peace Prize for a deal in Vietnam. So Kissinger's star rises while Nixon is going down, and Kissinger knows that as long as Nixon's in power, he cannot afford to in any way appear to be outshining the boss off the reservation, hence the phrase that he uses in that phone call, pack of jackals, which in this context could only mean the many reporters who were doggedly chasing Watergate. But it's so odd because, you know, that's what Kissinger would say to the president. But privately, Kissinger loved reporters and his skills as a flatterer were really unparalleled when it came to cultivating the press corps. And here I want to Read from today's guests, Tevi Troy's great obituary of Kissinger that ran last week in the Washington Examiner. Quote, Kissinger's ceaseless efforts to marginalize his rivals 
centered on the press. Kissinger was so close to the media that he, the correspondents who covered him were nicknamed the Choir Boys. Leaking was one of his favorite stratagems, as was accusing others of doing so. He once alleged that former Secretary of State William Rogers leaked to the press that Kissinger was dating the actress Jill St. John. Yet Rogers had not leaked this. Kissinger had, to brag for sure, but also to diminish Rogers with the president who hated leaks and leakers, end quote. So isn't that clever? So, so Kissinger, he's such a, he's such a manipulator. He's such a, a puppet master that he, he lets it slip that he's dating Jill St. John. He does it not only because it increases his status on the social set, because he's, uh, he's divorced from his first marriage by the time he's in power like this, but he also does it to marginalize his rival, who had a much longer relationship with Nixon, the Secretary of State. And this was one, one of the weapons that he used to get Nixon to not trust the Secretary of State and ultimately put Kissinger in charge of both the State Department as the Secretary of State and also his National Security Advisor, the only person to have held that, both jobs at the same time. Okay, right. so media relations, as we can establish, was a huge priority for Kissinger. In his biography of the man, Kissinger, Walter Isaacson writes that the former CIA director, Richard Helms, told him that he was once made to wait in Kissinger's office like a supplicant as he went through his message slips prioritized the calls from columnists and reporters, and then called them back promptly, all as the director of central intelligence waited and watched. Here I want to give a bit of personal background. Between 2000 and 2003, I was the State Department correspondent for UPI. So I, I wasn't in Kissinger's era, but I, I was in that State Department press corps. And we traveled on the secretary's plane, we covered the daily briefings, and component of that job at the time, and I'm sure they still do this, was that over time you would you would get invited to these, what we were called sundowners, end-of-the-day drinks with a senior official, usually off the record or on background in his or her office. Well, way back in the day, you know, some of the old-timers who were around for Kissinger told me about sundowners with Henry, and one can really see the appeal. First of all, he was smarter than everybody, but he also took the studied interest in the stories the reporters in the press corps were writing about him in the State Department. And so he could, you know, he was a dazzling conversation. He would be able to cite some obscure passage of European medieval history and then share a juicy nugget about meeting Mao Zedong. It's rare that a government official is a better writer than the wags that cover him. You could say like Daniel Patrick Moynihan was probably a better writer than the people who covered him. But it's, it's, it's rare. It's even rarer when such an official has the ego-fluffing skills of a Lyndon Johnson and a real seasoned political pro to take such keen interest in the journalist's inferior work, so to speak. It would be like being the sound engineer for like a Paul McCartney solo album. And then after one of the sessions, McCartney coming over and saying, you know, I, I caught your band the other night and I really like your sound, that kind of thing. So, you know, for the sound engineer, that would mean everything. And, you know, they would, they would automatically, you know, sort of be a, a McCartney fan for life. Similar kind of dynamic, I would say, with, with Kissinger. Anyway, nearly 20 years ago, some of the write-ups of these, uh, of Henry's chats with State Department reporters, these are known as telcons, were released to the public through the Freedom of Information Act. And here I want to quote from the great Jack Schaefer from his press box column in 2004. Quote, while many of the reporters captured in Kissinger's Amber must be ruining the release of these transcripts, news consumers everywhere should be celebrating this day by revealing the good, the bad, and the ugly practices of Washington journalists. The transcripts demystify the news manufacturing process, and provide a cautionary tale for reporters who give away their hearts too easily, too quickly, and for too little, end quote. The worst defender here was CBS chief diplomatic correspondent Marvin Kalb. So after Kissinger, 
manages to sideline Rodgers in 73 and become the only modern, the only person to ever hold the Secretary of State job as well as the National Security Advisor job. Kalb tells Henry, quote, I did wish you well from the bottom of my heart, the wisdom and the grace and the tolerance that are going to be so necessary to success because I very much have the feeling that in the long sweep of history, perhaps that your tenure is going to prove to be much larger than simply something that has to do with diplomacy. There's a human and a psychological component here which has to be vindicated in a major way, and I feel that very strongly, and I wish you towering good luck, end quote. Yuck. Can I have some pancakes with that syrup? All right. So now not every reporter was charmed by Kissinger the way that obviously Marvin Kalb was. Here I just want to recommend Oriana Falacci's I mean, by the way, read everything that this woman ever wrote. She's incredible. She wrote an, a legendary profile of Henry in 72, and I just want to read an excerpt here. This is Ariana Falacci in her profile, sort of describing the process of getting the interview with, with Kissinger. All right. Quote, yes, the time was found. The appointment made for Thursday, November 2nd, 1972, when I saw him arrive out of breath and unsmiling. And he said, good morning, Miss Falacci. Then still without smiling, he led me into his elegant office full of books and telephones and papers and abstract paintings and photographs of Nixon. Here he forgot about me, turned his back, and began reading a long typewritten report. Indeed, it was a little embarrassing to stand there in the middle of the room while he had his back to me and kept reading. It was also stupid and ill-mannered on his part. However, it allowed me to study him before he studied me, and not only to discover that he wasn't attractive at all, so short and thick-set and weighed down, by a large head like a sheep, but to discover also that he is by no means carefree or sure of himself. Before facing someone, he needs to take time and protect himself by his authority, a frequent phenomenon in shy people who try to conceal their shyness and by this effort end up seeming rude or by really being rude, end quote. Falacci is such a great writer. Well, Marvin Kalb had better access, but Oriana Falacci got the better story. Falachi, though, was the exception, as was Hitchens. Most of the press corps, most of the people in my position, my journalists like myself, well, we loved Henry Kissinger, even if we would often disagree with certain Kissinger policies or, you know, assess that there was no need to intervene in Chilean politics the way that Kissinger did or extend the war in Vietnam. Just there was something about him that was irresistible. Well, I should end this by saying that I did have a chance to meet him a few times. My first encounter was in 2007. I had been in Iraq for about three months at that point. I was writing for the New York Sun. And the occasion of a dinner between the editors of the Sun and Kissinger prompted my boss, editor Seth Lipsky, call me back to New York finally after, you know, three months in the war. I remember going to New York, bought a suit at Brooks Brothers for the occasion. Seth gave me a good tailor where I could get it done very quickly. And Henry in that dinner was gracious and charming, I have to say. I asked him, what America got out of cultivating relationships with dictators. And he mentioned that Iran, at the Iranian Shah's help in providing a surge of materiel to Vietnam during the de-escalation phase after the peace agreement that European democracies could not accommodate because by then the war was so unpopular. I'd say I didn't think that was a great answer, but he also told me that he'd read a few of my stories from Iraq and I began to feel a little bit like Marvin Kalb, I guess. Who, me? Read by the great Henry Kissinger? Aren't I so special? I would love an apple, Mr. Teacher. Anyway, fair enough. And that is one of the reasons why Henry Kissinger never really got the bad press that so many of his critics thought that he deserved and why 
at least for certain people of a certain generation, now it seems like it's so important to emphasize, you know, this really simplistic kind of, you know, Henry Kissinger supervillain narrative. It's always been there on the left, but we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of it. I'd say that it comes down to this rare combination of skills to be intellectually a genius and also to have this extraordinary ability to flatter and play the kind of inside power politics of Washington. You could say that he knew the refs better than they knew themselves. Well, we have back with us for the third time the Reeducation Podcast official presidential historian, my friend and one of my favorite writers, Tevi Troy. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, Eli, thank you for that compliment to be one of your favorite writers and indeed to be in this team company. So thank you. Well, let's get let's get to it. I want to first start off because you have just gotten back from a week in Israel where you have family, but you were able to sort of talk to people, get a sense of things. Why don't you just tell me your impressions from being on the ground there? Well, there's so much to say, but first I need to mention that I met a woman there named Judy Cardoza, and she told me that she is a huge fan oh, of the re-education. Yes. Thank you. I, you. You sent me something. And I sent you a I, video I just, of this I, woman. Yeah. I just had a little bit of a health scare, so it's hard for me to, yeah. And saying how great a podcast it is. So I just want oh. to give her a shout out and uh, oh, tell thank her to be you. strong yeah. in these difficult and Thank times. you, Judy, for listening. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. So you have fans in Israel and indeed around the world. Look, I've been to Israel 16 times in my, in my life, and this trip was like no other visit I have ever had there. I landed at Ben Gurion Airport, which is usually one of the most crowded, most bustling, most challenging airports to get through. And yes. It was empty. It was a ghost town. Wow. I'd never seen it. It was completely eerie. I said to one of the women who does passport control, I said, I've never seen it empty like this. And she just gave me a, sh a sad shrug. So yeah. that was kind of my, oh, my entry to Israel and really colored my thoughts for the rest of the week. And then as we walked through the airport, anybody who's been there knows there's this long sloping hallway that you walk right. down. And we were the only people in that long hallway and both sides were lined with posters of the hostages. So you, that you really reminds get... me when I when I I was in Ukraine like a few months after the original war where the Russians took Crimea, and there was a similar thing with missing Ukrainians where every wherever you went, it was like it was a constant theme. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 you can the country is totally transformed. It is at war. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah, it's it's palpable. You really feel it. And then the other thing I would say is that every single person I talked to had a story. And all of these stories are heartbreaking. Some people, their, their trauma is so powerful. You, you just marvel at their strength that they're, they're going on. But really, everyone has a story. Um, my nephew is in an elite unit. He's lost 11 colleagues already oh my God. in war. Um, my cousin was on a kibbutz in the South. She survived, but she's now a refugee. And she lives in a lot for now. 
and she had to hide for many hours. Her daughter, who grew up on kibbutz but no longer is a kibbutz person, became a financial planner. Oh. And as a financial planner, she is expert in the lives of people who live on southern kibbutzes because that's how she grew up. She lost 38 clients murdered oh on October 7th. Oh. And beyond just the sheer human tragedy of it, think about what it means for day-to-day lives. Some of these people had wills. Some of these people didn't. Some of these people had their houses destroyed. Some yeah. have families intact. Some don't know where their families are. And she has to sort through all of it. So everybody really feels the trauma. And let me just give one last story. I mentioned my cousin who grew up, who lived on this kibbutz in Gaza, was a teacher for 40 years in Gaza. So that means she taught 40 years of classes. So she right. knows so many of the people. And I asked her how many people she knows were either killed or taken hostage. She said she can't count. She really has no idea. And oh. when I went to the the march in Washington, the 290,000 person march where the Jews really, I would say, acquitted themselves honorably and patriotically in contrast to the the depredations that we see at the pro-Hamas rallies where they tear yeah, down where American flags. they're trying flags. to destroy Grand Central Station. Right, they're, or tear down trying American to break flags the window of Day, like, glue what, themselves to the ground on Thanksgiving Day, attack yeah. restaurants just because the owners are Jewish. So, I, I mean, I really think there was a nice stark contrast with how the Jewish community behaves. But I got There was something, poster. even though it was a somber moment, there was almost something that was celebrating our people, like the idea of Am Yisrael Chai, we endure, we're still here, even in the, in the face of tragedy, which is a hard thing to explain, I think, sometimes the idea that, like, well, why would there be... I don't want to, it's, it's, there was, I, I wasn't there, but I talked a lot. It, it's almost a, not celebration, but a sense of like, hey, as a people, we're together, you know, like we're. Yeah. And also a sense of patriotism. I saw American flags yeah. mixed with the Israeli flags, whereas the, these other rallies, they're tearing down American flags. But anyway, this last point is that yeah. my cousin, who I, as I said, knows so many people who were taken hostage that day. Well, that day, I just happened to pick up a poster of a hostage. His name is Alex Danzig. And I just put it up in my house because I, I want to have a reminder of yeah. that. And I was walking down the street with my cousin. And I saw an Alex Danzig poster. I said, hey, that's the poster I have at my house. And she said, I know him. He's a history teacher, which really hit with me because, as you know, I'm a historian. Yeah. <laughs> and she said he gave the best lecture she ever saw on astronomical holidays and, and winter solstices. Oh, and um, wow. she knows him oh. for 40 years and it kind of oh. brought home. I had this kind of two-dimensional poster of a person up just to remind me of the hostages and she made him three-dimensional. And oh, uh, I think going to Israel makes the whole feeling about this from two-dimensional to three-dimensional to see it in reality. I want to just, I want to ask a couple things about sort of the, the mood of the country and sort of you're there. Is, and this, I'm trying to almost steal man an argument is there a sense, in your view, that there there is a need on a human level for vengeance? And I want to get into this idea of vengeance because it's not entirely an un-Jewish value to seek vengeance after a horrible atrocity. And yet, that I think that the, the more honest criticisms, I'm not talking about the people who are delegitimizing Israel. I'm talking about people who I would consider I disagree with, but they are saying some of the war so far has been more of an act of vengeance and strategically not as smart. Again, not my view, but I want to try to get your sense from having been there. Is there a sense that this horrible atrocity must be avenged? Or is it we have for too long tolerated a terrorist group as a government on our border no more? 
or maybe both. I don't know. You know, I heard almost no talk of vengeance. I oh, interesting. That's, okay. That's the operative concept. What I hear is there are 200,000 people who are refugees. Right. They cannot go back to their homes because they do not feel safe. Right. And until and unless the terror threat that is Hamas is brought under control or destroyed or unable to develop the vast, vast arsenal that I can't believe that they developed, then those people cannot return. Israel cannot be a viable country until that so happens. So that's the, it's, 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 it's really, it's utilitarian. It's not, it's not a sense of they must pay this price. Because there was, I mean, listen, I think it's understandable. I, I've defended Israeli officials in the aftermath of, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, we've got to get that or, or, or the idea of Amalek, you know, that every generation there's this evil in the world and this is not evil. I think that's true, but. I, I, again, I heard nothing along those lines. What I heard okay. is Israel has effectively ceded territory in the north and the south while these dangers are manifest. And you right. can't be a viable country if you just withdraw from right. the territory. And, and again, this isn't withdrawing like they did from Gaza. This is just withdrawing from completely Israeli-held territory filled with Jews, not filled with, <laughs> with Arabs. It's not even area that's, that's officially contested land. But they're not there right now because it's not safe to be there. And you can't give up that much territory, especially in a small country. And so they need to be able to establish deterrence and also right. di disarm Hamas so that they can go back to those lands. Did you talk to anybody who was maybe in the peace camp on October 6th? And then, I mean, did you talk to anybody on the Israeli left? I know that, you know, that's... You know, the, the sense I got is that the Israeli left is just much diminished not only well, that's, um, that's been true for, for 20 right, years, but right I mean, for 20 years. So it's yeah. really, I mean, I, w I wasn't hard, hanging out with hard right wingers or anything, but, but you right. know, these people have a hard headed attitude about what, what they face and what they, what they have to do. But I, I didn't wait, you know, I didn't talk to any of his, as an R parlance, people who would say they were neoconservatives who got mugged by reality there. I, I didn't talk to anyone like that. Okay. Let me ask you about the person. I mean, there's a line that you hear from all of Israel, like if you watch the Ron Dermer interviews from Sunday, that every Israeli official will always be, first thing, we want to thank the Biden administration for all of this. And if you watch some Biden administration officials like John Kirby, it's a re it's refreshing as compared to what you might hear from the UN or the government of Spain or, you know, some members of Democrats in Congress. But What's the sense in Israel? Because there seems to be a lot of mixed messages coming from the Biden administration on, you know, there was a story about how much you don't have the credit for a long war that, that Secretary of State Blinken said. Biden has at times kind of said, oh, that's an interesting idea. Maybe we should condition the aid, although I don't know if he meant it. Has that registered among Israelis or is it just they're all so grateful that America has, that the Biden administration has really been in the right place and where they had to be? The Israelis are carefully watching everything that Biden and Blinken and Sullivan say, as is Hamas, I will say. So yes. when Blinken gets up there and he says, and again, I think this is a private meeting that leaked as opposed to a public statement. But when yeah, Blinken but it, says, yeah, but when Lincoln says you can't operate this way, you can't operate that way. Hamas adjusts its, adjusts its tactics to reflect that and say, oh, well, Blinken says they can't do this. Let's let's protect ourselves by standing here or standing there. So. It is dangerous in some ways to lay out operationally what Israel can and can't do. That said, I think Israel recognizes that there is currently no angle in criticizing the Biden administration. 
sure. because the Biden administration has. No, I, I mean, for, I get that as a as public diplomacy. Yeah. I'm asking, like, do the people, are they like, is what's their sense? I, I understand the argument about, like, there's no point for Netanyahu to say anything wrong because he's getting most of what he wants, and that would open up a rift and other enemies would take advantage of it. I get all that. I'm just like, do the people of Israel feel that Biden has their back, which I think they did in the first weeks after it? They definitely did in the first weeks. The Blinken statement makes people wonder. Uh, Biden saying that he's going to do better in terms of accepting propaganda numbers from the Gaza Health Ministry. I thought it was disappointing. So, I mean, there's this bit of a you know step forward, step back uh, kind of uh, iceberg movement uh, with the Biden administration. And again, for the most part, I think strategically from a big picture sense, they say Israel has to be able to destroy Hamas. But the kind of niggling little details, I think, can be problematic. Okay. I want to now shift. Thank you so much. This was the section of our interview where we got your impressions from the Jewish state in a, in a time of war. I now want to kind of now move on to, you know, Tevi Troy, the historian. And I, I want to get, we're going to get to Henry Kissinger, but before we do, what do you think this moment tells us in terms of the history of Zionism as an idea and the history of, of, of Israeli statecraft? And what I'm trying to get at is, Part of the very essence of Zionism is that we can only rely as Jews on ourselves, which is why we need our own state, to ultimately defend ourselves. So as as wonderful as Biden has been, there's a danger in getting to the point where we are so reliant we lose our sovereignty, even on a great friend like America. And I want to make it clear that historically America's been a great friend of Israel. And maybe I just want you to reflect on this idea of like, what is what are the lessons in the history of this idea of Jewish nationalism teach us for this moment right now, when a lot of the world is now turning on Israel? And we're, it's, it's, I can't, I still can't believe I'm saying this. Israel's the bad guy after being the victim of this horrendous attack. But that's what's happening. So what is it, what does Zionism kind of tell us? What can we learn from the history of this idea intellectually and maybe the history of the struggle for Jewish statehood? Okay, that, that's a really thoughtful question, and it's going to take a little to uh, get sure. to all the elements of the answer. Yeah, but Mika Goodman, who is a, a I love really him, brilliant thinker. I have he him said on at some point. Yeah, in the aftermath of October seventh, we learned that on that terrible, terrible day, the alternative to Israeli sovereignty is Kishniev, referring to the famous yes. pogrom that led to the Chaim Nachman Bialik poem, "City of Slaughter." Right. So Israel knows that where Jews aren't protected with an army, with Israeli sovereignty, that they are vulnerable. And I think that's the whole idea of Zionism. The, the whole idea is that we can't rely on the European countries to protect us. You couldn't rely on the czar to protect you. And Israel needs to go someplace where it's safe. Now, for the last hundred years or so, I would say it's been pretty safe in America. And I think that may have led to a false sense of security. And also America has been good about condemning other nations that do I would things. argue that American throughout its history largely really good to Jews from Washington's yeah, famous absolutely letter. Absolutely true. But there's yeah. been a much larger population in the last century. And and when I'm talking the last century, I would say that from Leo Frank, the lynching yes. of Leo Frank about a hundred years ago, to the uh, Pittsburgh synagogue, there was a pretty much a hundred years where no Jews were killed in anti Semitic incidents or, or you know, only a very, very tiny tiny handful, which is amazing. Yeah. And, and also the majority of American opinion has yeah. kind of consistently not been anti-Semitic, which we can't say for Russia or France or the Arab right. world. So, so that period that should that is worthy of celebration and worthy of praising America for, I think may have given some people a false sense of security, including yes. myself, perhaps. 
the sense that, oh, well, you know, we're past that in the civilized Western world and we're moving right. past it. You, 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 I've told you in the past, one of my favorite lines from Barry Weiss's book about what to do about anti-Semitism, where she says that in Europe, Protestants and Catholics killed each other. And in America, they have brunch. And I think that we've seen in the last couple of months that there are people here in this country who are not ready to have brunch. And it's not on yeah. the Jewish side. And so I think we need to get back to that concept of brunch, but I, I don't know how to make people brunch eaters. So it's a great, I think yeah. that, that's part of the issue. Well, let's bracket that. That's a question about what's happening in elements of this country. I still am optimistic overall, but I, I certainly agree. We've seen something very ugly kind of turn up since October 7th in this country. Look, we're both like Irving Crystal, short-term pessimists, long-term optimists, right? Yeah, right, indeed. Right. But let's, I, I want to try to dwell on this idea, like, you know, the kind of great debates among like Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion and the idea of what exactly the state of Israel was going to accomplish, because I do think it presents a challenge in the following sense. We did have an army. It's a state with a nuclear weapon. And yet this happened. Almost, I still can't believe it happened. And on top of that, it happened. And, you know, the wake-up call was, it didn't necessarily mean that the whole world was like, oh my God, we're on Israel's side. This is a terrible thing. It seemed to excite a latent anti-Semitism all over the world, and especially even in the Western world. People became like almost rapturous about it. And you that know, I think is like Herzl would be telling us it's always there. Careful, you know, like don't don't get too comfortable, you know. And he would always say, if you really wanted to destroy the Jews, be nice to us and then we'll forget we're Jewish. You know, that was sort of I'm paraphrasing there. But you know, and I just wondering like I, I gotta you know, quote uh, Herbie Crystal again who said yeah. that the, the danger in America is not that the Christians want to kill the Jews, but they want to marry them, right? Yeah, right, exactly, right. So I think uh, he, he was in line with her. Yeah, but I, I just want to kind of get to that idea of like, well, is it a challenge to this, at a deep level, to the idea of Israel's a safe haven? Look, I think if you told me that on October 6th that Hamas, if they had the opportunity, would kill and rape and slaughter Jews, it would not shock me. No, you I understand You told me on that. October 6th, the latter part, that the, all these Western nations would, in the wake of such slaughters, be almost rapturous, in your, in your words. That is the part that has been more surprising to me, and, and in some ways more disturbing in terms of where we are as Western Jews who live outside the outside of Israel. Israel is always known it has a security challenge. Obviously, well, I meant, I meant it screwed like, up royally yes, on October right. 6th. But the rest and of And they us, screwed up before. It, like, you could say there was a screw-up in security in the Munich Olympics in the 73 right. Yom Kippur War. There's it just because you have a state doesn't mean you're not going to be attacked and you're not going to be surprised. But there is something about this attack and it's just, it was, it there like, I can't get my head around the following thing. I don't see the strategy of it. I mean, people have tried to, to, to explain it. Well, now we've got, people are talking about Palestinian statehood for the first time in Delhi. I, I can't, I won't hear it. It was savage. It was like, we're willing to sacrifice our own population to kill, rape, mutilate Jews. That's what it was. That's how important it was to us. And then the fact that Israel is a more powerful party than Hamas, but it couldn't prevent that. That's, that's, it's just, it's still, you know, two months later, I'm still dealing with it, you know, as we all are. Yeah, I mean, try and find the Jew who's not having trouble sleeping these days. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, it, it, it is a problem. 
But but I think that Israel can handle the challenge it faces. I think yes. there's resolve there. There's strong military. I think they can do what they have to do. The question is, what's going to happen to Jews outside of Israel? You know, right. I'm not one of these people who thinks that it's all over for Jews in America. There's been a long, happy, peaceful history of Jews in America. And I, and I think that's likely to continue, even though we're going to have to make some adjustments, especially about where we think about sending our kids to school. But what's yeah. going to happen to the Jews of England or France or Belgium in, in 20 years? I mean, the, the, the trajectories are not good in those countries. Certainly, By the Russia, way, Ariel Sharon during the Second Intifada was saying, leave France. Remember that? Yeah. Um, and Yahoo, the French, I think, said it too. Right. right. And the French got very upset. And it, yeah. uh, I think it was Macron who said France without its Jews is not France. Yeah. So, and, you know, in some ways, I think that the French ultimately will do what has to be d- done to protect their population in a way that maybe the Belgians and, and the British wouldn't. So there, there may be more, more future for the Jews of France, but uh, some of these other countries, I, 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 there's reason to worry. I mean, then you think about a, a country like Russia, which has a lot of Jews. I mean, I think it's... Uh, third or fourth largest Jewish population in the world. And Putin was, for all of his horrendous flaws, not flaws, like evils, until October 7th was pretty good to Jews, especially if you put, if you grade on the curve of, of, of historically Russian leaders. Absolutely. And Netanyahu, I think, 10 years ago, we thought Netanyahu was onto something by developing better relations with China and with Russia than the Americans had. And on October 7th, we saw that that was all just a sham and that right. uh, China and Russia are not with Israel in any way. And, uh, you know, China doesn't have a significant Jewish population, but uh, I worry about the Jewish population of Russia, given the way Putin has uh, revealed his colors so boldly. Well, the Chinese have a weird relationship with Jews. They, they, lo- they really admire Jews. There's a, there's a sense of like, they want to be friends with Israel because they think the Jews are really clever and, and industrious people and they want technology that Israel develops and things like that. But you're right. If you don't share basic values that America has and that the West has, in the end, you're just going to be left to twist in the wind. And that's what it shows. All right. So back back to diaspora. Is there a crisis in the American Jewish community? In, or are, you, are you concerned? Do we have a large number of younger Jews that have taken the Peter Beinert position that Israel really is the bad guy and that, you know, all of these ideas that we were talking about with Zionism and Israel being a safe haven just are not true. And, it's, and you know, to be, again, to steal man, I don't want to, there are far, there are some Jews like Norman Finkelstein or Max Blumenthal who really crossed over into the anti-Semitic side. But there's a, there's a segment of these Jews that are convinced that Israel is an evil state and they don't want to say that they had it coming and they'll recognize how horrible and savage the attack of October 7th was. But they're more they, they're much more concerned about Israel's response than they are to this very real question issue that you laid out at the beginning of the interview, which is Israel has to figure out how 200,000 internally displaced citizens can return home. Do we have a crisis in American Judaism? Is there like a, 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 a rift in the, in the house of American Judaism, if you will? So I don't, I don't think so. And that's okay. not my top concern right now is the small minority of Jews who are so you taking think it's an anti small and they get a lot of attention. Yes, but, but I think the bigger problem is on yeah. college campuses writ large, it's not just Jewish students. There's plenty of woke, radical students who buy this ridiculous oppressor-oppressed narrative. Yeah. And they are bolstered by 
people who come here from the Muslim world who are agitators on campus and they don't take the American way of uh, protest. Uh, they don't view the way of protest the same way. Their way of protest is intimidation and threats and violence. And I think those combined are toxic. But I, I don't think that's primarily an issue of American Jews on campus. I think the American Jews on campus are feeling aggrieved and burdened. And even so, and here's an area where I have talked to people on the left who are getting that wake-up call. I, have, I didn't do that in Israel because they got their wake-up call 20 years ago. But in America, you're seeing American Jews, their parents and the students on campus saying, well, what the heck is going on here? I'm, you know, suddenly my allies, you know, and all these left-wing causes are not my allies when it comes to my own survival as a Jew. Uh, so you I, wrote, I by the way, I want to, we'll link it. Tevi wrote a wonderful piece from the heart in the first weeks after October 7th for the Wall Street Journal, which just, it, I think it was a very sympathetic, it was just a kind of like, hey, this is what I'm hearing from my friends who are more progressive, who are Jewish, that there's no one there for us. And I think it was, it just really hit a nerve for me. I sent it to so many people. We'll link Thank it. You. Listeners should read it. So your view is that it's not like there's a real threat for the direction of the American Jewish community. We're not going to see the next president of the vice of the conference of presidents or something like that be a, a Peter Bider style, you know, anti-Zionist. But I think that's less likely to happen after October yeah, 7th. Right. But there is a problem in that a lot of Jew, Jewish Americans are more on the progressive side and they are feeling like there's this contradiction that they can't be, they can't, they can't, you know, kind of follow their own values on issues like immigration or racial and social justice and still say Israel should exist. Yeah. And I think that's a crisis for them. I don't think that's necessarily a crisis for the Jewish community. I think the crisis for the Jewish community is where are we going to send our kids to be educated? And it's not just for the Jewish community, but it's for America at large. I think if these uh, so-called elite universities, uh, and Lance Morrow had this great line in the Wall Street Journal this morning. He said, he just called them the expensive universities. The word elite is no longer right. applicable. <laughs> um, but these expensive universities that, that get a lot of attention are really teaching moral depravity to students. This whole notion that uh, oppressors, know, there's no limit to what evils you can do to oppressors and there's no limit to the evils that oppressed can do. Um, that, that's fundamentally immoral. And so, so my wife is a professor is really and I, 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 we've had this argument, you know, for many years. So I want to steal Mana because I'm with you largely, but I want to just sort of present this other view. She says, listen, when we get the kids as undergrads, they're already kind of steeped in a lot of this stuff. Now, I'm not saying so that maybe it's not so much that they're learning it from a professor or they're learning it even in college or they're learning it in high school. Maybe it's just like in the ether or the culture. It's online. It's on TikTok. It's, you know, they're picking it up and it's shaping how they view the world. And maybe it's is it a call? Is it a is it a college problem or is it a culture problem? Or maybe it's both. Yeah, I'd say color me skeptical on that. I mean, look, you know what it's like in high school. I've had three kids go through high school. For the most part, kids are not engaging in serious ideas in high school. And it is yeah. in college when they start to engage and they really get formed as intellectual beings. And if a college is promoting these ideas, and again, it's not just the professors, but it's also the administrators. I mean, you, I, I would like to see if we get back to a formula where every college has more educators than administrators. Because the administrators, especially the DEI administrators, are some of the worst centers of anti-Israel thought and anti-Israel and anti-American thought. On, on campuses. So let's get back into the University of Austin, I heard has a rule again, that, you know, I don't know if it's going to actually happen when they start teaching that none of the administrators will actually be on campus 
that will only be educators on campus, only people who have direct interaction with the students. And again, uh, I think University of Austin is is inclined or in a direction where they're going to have uh, better better professors than your average expensive university. But I think we. I, I think it's, I just don't think it's accurate to say, oh, it's the, the kids already formed with this oppressor oppressed paradigm before they get to college. College they're is just, the idea. Well, my, my wife's point in her, in fairness, is that they're picking it up somewhere. And that by the time they're in her art history class, these are not foreign concepts to them. It's not like she's introducing them to Franz Fanon. And maybe they didn't know it was Franz Fanon. And she does, I should say, she doesn't teach Franz Fanon. So let me, that's a bad example, but. Good for her. It's not that. It's more that it's they they were aware that this is how you're supposed to view the world, and they're getting it somewhere. And I can, in fairness, I can see how, you know, when Black Lives after George Floyd, the NBA went all in on the idea of Black Lives Matter, and for the season of the first COVID season, every team had, you know. A, a, a very left-wing slogan on the uniforms of the players. So you couldn't, even if you, if you just wanted to watch basketball, you got the ideology. And uh, you know what I'm saying? I, and I've heard stories about, you know, from younger people I know who say, you know, if, if you just want to play like Fortnite or something, th- there were times, especially they always go back to George Floyd, but you would see in the middle of all that, there would be these other messages and things like that, you know? So it was just one of these things where it's just kind of in the, in the culture. You know, yeah. Look, it, this is a multi-platform fight that we're going to have to engage right. in. I think Mike Gallagher has written great stuff about oh, TikTok and the challenges of TikTok, and just the contrast with how the Chinese don't allow their kids to watch TikTok for more than an hour a day, and when they do, it's math videos. Whereas here, we basically allow unfettered access to TikTok, and it's the yeah. most vile. And Jonathan Hayden has, has been very good on this too. So, I, so you know, I think the platforms are a problem. I think the schools are a problem. I think the media is a problem. I mean, we're, we're going to have to rethink how we do a lot of things. And some of the things we're going to need government right. policies. But some of the things I think individuals need to step up and act. If, if you say, you know, I'm not going to hire people from these universities that are teaching such awful thoughts. Well, maybe people won't go to the expensive universities anymore because it's, it's not going to be worth it. If you say, as a parent, I'm not going to send my kids to these schools. Well, maybe the schools will have trouble finding the students who are actually going to pay tuition. And if you say as a donor, I'm not going to give money to you if this is what you're teaching, then maybe at some point the schools get the message. But I really think the number one thing that has to happen is these expensive schools. And again, I'm going to drop the moniker elite schools for all time, starting with this podcast. But these expensive schools have to lose their reputation or be threatened with the suffering of the loss of their reputation. And it is really, it's only the myth of what these schools provide that gives them their cultural power. I'll say one area that will be so challenging in this is that in, and I know this from art history, which is what my wife is an art historian, there is, there is, everybody knows that there are, where the graduate schools rank in that field. And if you don't get into like Princeton, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, I don't know, there's like a a handful, oddly also like University of Delaware, very, very good art history graduate program then you're not going to get a job teaching. And so it's like, it's already baked in that if you want to teach this, you want to be in the, in the knowledge class as kind of a, a, a PhD who, who teaches people to learn these topics, whether it's art history or the various area studies, there are only a handful, especially when you get into the humanities of places 
where you can go that will allow you to actually have a career in that. And even that is not a guarantee. And so it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's very hard to break that at this point. Whereas I think in the hard sciences or even in economics or something like that, you know, if you have a unique insight into something, you can be recognized and other people will see your work and it's easier to kind of break out of that group thing. I think it's much harder if you're talking about, you know, the humanities. So I have a couple about. of thoughts on this. First yeah. of all, it's hard, but not impossible. Things change okay. over time, right? Uh, you know, yeah. The Ivy Leagues really developed the reputation that they have over the last 40, 50 years. It wasn't, they weren't as elite as they are now, 50, 60 years ago. They were a place where, you know, rich kids who went to Hotchkiss could go to. So I think right. that it is was actually like it was better to go to Swarthmore than to go to like Penn. Right. So, I, yeah. so I, think, I think that those things change over time and people can have an impact on how these things develop. Right. The second thing, and I'm telling kids this all the time, because believe me, I, I'm, I'm teaching at Yeshiva University now this semester and I right. talk to kids all the time. Where do I go? What do I do? And I tell them talent finds a way. You can't keep talent yeah. down. You may say, okay, you're not going to get a job in the DEI department at a major corporation. Well, maybe you don't want that. And Who you wants can, there, right. Um, there are other pathways. In well, Lionel Trilling went to, was a Cooney guy. Right. One of the greatest literary critics of the 20th century. So yeah, your, your point well taken. All of the towering intellectuals of the neoconservative movement all went to City University of New York because they couldn't get jobs at Columbia. That was the, you know. Right. And look, Goldman Sachs came about because the so-called you know, white shoe banking firms wouldn't hire Jews. Right. And so Goldman Sachs came and then they had all these smart Jews who couldn't get jobs elsewhere. And then they kind of ran rings around the, around the other guy. And if Goldman Sachs says, well, I'm not going to hire the smartest people because of whatever DEI core obligations are out there, then maybe some alternative firms will develop. I mean, I hear people who say, you know, don't go to the big consulting firms or the big banks uh, because they're not necessarily focused on getting the best these days. Maybe go to a startup where you have more ability to shine and show yourself. So I think there are just alternative pathways, especially in an economy as great and as vibrant, as dynamic as, as America. And don't just think, I can't go to Harvard, so my, my pathway to success is gone. There are alternative pathways. And even before all, all this, there were studies that showed that if, let's say, you got into Harvard and Maryland or, or you know, some, some state school, the people who got into both schools but chose to go to the state school had equal outcomes. It just the, the question oh, is. Oh, I didn't know that. Do you have Do you have the goods to get into these top schools? And I found they, in journalism that there were. I went to a pretty good school. I went to Trinity College in Connecticut, but I found that there were kids who got that the get it, going to Harvard would get you your first internship, and you would have a huge advantage. So you could get the, the New Republic internship or the New York Times internship, but from there, it, you you know you sank or swam on your own talent. Yeah, it's so, true. Not just in journalism. Yeah. You yeah. need to show, you need to prove yourself in the, in the workplace. And, and you know, I've talked yeah. to people at, at Fortune 50 companies who told me they have internal rules about not hiring from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, because the kids come out woke and entitled and not willing to work. If you, if right. you want to be successful in the workplace, you're going to have to work. And, you know, I, I know you've done prodigious amounts of hard work across your career and, and unbelievable reporting. And you, you've proved yourself in, in the workplace. Yeah, well, and nobody, I, in a weird, and nobody weirdly, thinks about like, the fact you at went the to time, I, or not. At the time, I, I, I was upset because I wanted, I wanted the New Republic internship, and I knew I couldn't get it by just having gone to only Trinity College. 
but I'm in, in over time after, especially when I was, I was briefly a contributing editor and I wrote for them, I sort of thought to myself, you know, it was a good thing that I didn't have the easiest first entry into journalism, because I think that, you know, you should have a, you should have a kind of a crappy job in journalism first before you get to, before some, someone sort of tells you, yeah, you know, well, so what, what do you think of, uh, you know, the debt limit negotiations or something, you know, like 22 year olds shouldn't have those opinions, but that's a very good point. And I, it's, it's opt, I'm, you're making, it's, it's a sense of hope. This has been a wide ranging conversation with a little bit of time we have left heavy. Got to talk about Henry Kissinger. We lost him last week, hundred years old. I think I'm where Jonah, our mutual friend Jonah Goldberg is where I'm not the like defending Henry Kissinger against everything. And I thought I loved your piece in the Washington Examiner because you had a line in there about his, at the end about his schemes not having always worked out and everything. But, you know, the the left is like this. Is, I mean, even I was friends with Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens believed he was one of the kind of lying war criminals. I, I somewhat dissent from that, although Hitchens made that case better than some others have recently in the last week. But maybe just talk about like Kissinger's legacy as somebody who understood the American foreign policy, modern, almost invented it, you could say, how American presidents make foreign policy and just you know, smoked his rivals like William Rogers. And he played like kind of infighting politics better than anyone. Look, Henry Kissinger was brilliant. You have to acknowledge that. Yes. And uh, as a, you know, neocon, not necessarily the uh, bagel snarfing warmonger uh, that Jonah jokes about neocons have become, but, you know, someone who yeah. uh, admires Irving Crystal and Norman Podhoretz and Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I was with the people who were critical of Kissinger yeah. For his policies on Israel, supposedly he said in the 73 war, let Israel bleed a little, a little bit before we give them arms. I was critical of the detente. famous line. What do you say? If there was another final solution in the Soviet Union, it would not be American concern, Mr. Nixon. Like, Right. Yeah. You know, his, his, his approach on detente, you know, I think the China thing you know, seemed like a strategic, brilliant move at the time, but it was not necessarily working out so well. So I've got some yeah. criticisms of, of Kissinger, but every time Ben Hamas Rhodes opens up his mouth, and I call him Ben Hamas Rhodes because that's yes, his only nickname that. that he lays out in his memoir. I would die of yes. shame if that were my nickname in the White House, but he lays it out in his nick in his memoir that that's his nickname. But when Ben Hamas Rhodes writes that terrible beast about Kissinger in the New York Times, I get more sympathetic towards Kissinger. So I guess I have a mixed view of him. I've looked, I've gone into the archives. I've studied the memos. I wrote multiple books that talk about Kissinger and how sharp elbowed he was, and really a little crazy in the White House in terms of how. Hard I'm sorry, but like his, his, his paranoia after the Pentagon Papers was destructive. He spied on his own staff. Yeah, it led to Watergate. He's responsible, as you say, to the, for the plumbers, which brought Nixon down ultimately, although Kissinger was, you know, manages to skate away from it, you know, without any stench. Incredible. I think both Nixon and Ford liked Kissinger's brilliance. And Nixon in particular, the reason that Kissinger won out over William Rogers, who was an old-time old friend of Nixon, is that Nixon felt he could learn stuff about foreign policy from Kissinger, and he felt that Rogers had nothing to teach him. We should say that there was a view, because Kissinger was, you know, what is the, there's a line, you probably won't get because I'm more into hip-hop, but there's like legend in two games. Like, he was, before becoming a diplomat, he was... One of the great foreign policy intellectuals, not only did he teach at Harvard, he wrote kind of the most influential book on the idea of nuclear deterrence and nuclear war. 
he was somebody who, at his later memoirs, are considered kind of classics of the genre. His book Diplomacy is one of the greats and will be read for hundreds of years, I think. And then to also be this good at, you know, actual diplomacy and bureaucratic infighting, it's, I, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that in, in terms of American history. Maybe in to, like a Thomas Jefferson, right, who was a great writer and intellectual in his own right and also a great statesman, but it's very rare kind of thing. He was brilliant, but that doesn't mean he was right about everything. That's how I'd sum it up. Yeah. Okay. That's a fair, that's a, that's a fair point. Since we have a little bit of time left on Kissinger, I think we disagree on something, which is to say I, after doing my deep state, deep dives, the church and deep state series, I came away that I think Kissinger was wrong in, he was, he, he embraced a kind of cult of excessive secrecy. And that really came true when he did not want anybody talking about what Nixon's what was known as the track two policy was on Chile, where we supported elements of the military that eventually were responsible for the coup against Salvador Allende, the socialist president. The left is wrong in that they always paint Allende as a pure victim. Allende had ties to the Cubans as well as the Soviets. So you can, in the context of the Cold War, it really was both kind of forces were intervening. But I always kind of felt that, you know what, American people have a right to know their foreign policy, even if it's dirty and, you know, somewhat embarrassing and, you know, within reason. And Kissinger never seemed to sort of accept that. I think you disagree with me on this. So I am concerned about excessive secrecy, and I think it's ridiculous to classify documents that are basically New York Times articles. Yeah. So so I'm and that's not, the easy case. But, I'm talking about but, like... But I do think that policymakers should have the ability to negotiate in private. And I think one of the problems I agree with, with hyper-partisanship in the House is But this that wasn't like negotiating a secret. treaty with Argentina. This wasn't with Chile. This was a secret policy that was denied by the U.S. government officially, where we were intervening in the affairs of Chile. I mean, not just under Nixon, under Johnson, for a period of about, you know, 10 years, because we wanted a certain level of outcome. And we felt that it was very important to make sure that Chile didn't join the Soviet bloc, so to speak, or didn't do the Cuban bloc in the Western Hemisphere. So generally in favor of secrecy, but against lying, right? You have sure. to be able to be secret, but you can't go out there and bald-faced lie to the American public. And look, I, you know, in, in my own dealings, I, I'm very circumspect. I don't tell everybody everything that's going on, but I never lie. Right. And, right. and, you know, it's hard to lay that out for an entire foreign policy and for an entire two million person government. But I think sometimes, you know, the, the basic principles are the best one. And I think if we could lay something out in, in those regards, I think that we'd be better off. Kissinger, though, was hostile to the idea that even Congress should have any kind of oversight of, call it the, the secret side of the U.S. government in terms of foreign policy. No, no. And he would go crazy when Colby went to testify. Oh, he hated thing. Colby. He thought Colby was insane. And it's funny. I mean, I'm going to probably get into this in my monologue for this episode because I wanted to do a little something on Kissinger, but he had a bitter, Kissinger had a bitter feud with Scoop Jackson, as we know, when it came to the overall detente policy. But he would quote Jackson because he, Jackson agreed with him on the secrecy question. So he would give advice. He'd say, well, I think we should follow the advice of Senator Scoop Jackson and tell these people as little as possible. Like, and it was like... <laughs> He would kind of go back to this. And I always thought that was very interesting because he was able to kind of keep in his head 
you know, I mean, he's a rival with me on this big thing that I care about, but he's my ally on this, and I can even play it like that. He was a brilliant man. In that respect. Well, similar to that is what our friend John Podhoritz said about his dad, Norman Podhoritz. I love a, that story. A, a critic of Kissinger, and yet Kissinger kind of respected Podhoritz enough that he took his criticism to heart, where sometimes the, the leftist, nonsensical, war criminal stuff uh, Kissinger could safely ignore. And so uh, he became friends, close friends with Norman Podhoritz after he was no longer in government. He also where, where do you was, think the left that why do they hate Kissinger so much? And I only say this because Kissinger gets such an outsized amount of the blame when it's not just that you know why don't why don't you blame Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon or Gerald Ford, but also like you could find other figures. I mean, like recently there has been interest in the Dulles brothers with some books by like Stephen Kinzer and others. Talbot has a book called Devil's Chessboard. But I don't see nearly as much vitriol about the about Alan Dulles, who probably did more Richard Helms for that matter, than I do about Henry frickin' Kissinger. I mean, I don't know. Is that anti Semitism? Do you want me to or? say it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, after I, you know, the, the fact that Kissinger died after October 7th, where we all had this bit of a wake up yeah. call, makes me wonder. I, it never occurred to me before that some of the vitriol towards Kissinger was related to his, yeah. him, him being a, the most prominent American Jew in the 1970s. And I think that's a fair assessment. But I think that maybe that's part of the legacy and that there's this this seething anti-Semitism that's been under the barely under the surface under the, on the left and has emerged more over, over the surface recently. And I think that may be a part of it. Yeah, but... I, I have to think about it more, about what is it about Kissinger, because it, it's been this way since before October 7th. I mean, Kissinger, do you remember that scene, that, that during the 2016 primary, that that was Bernie Sanders' go-to line? Remember that? It was like, I would, I'm not, I don't trust a Democrat who would call themselves friends with a Henry Kissinger. And there was something about it that was at the time, it was quaint. It was like, well, every Democrat has been friends with Henry Kissinger since he left government, it seems, you know, it's like, where is this coming from? But he was representing something that's very much, very real right now in the, in the politics. Did you see that Jacob Bergstein piece in the New York Times about Kissinger and, and on the social circuit? I didn't see that. I have to read that. <laughs> there was a wonderful you know, line I had in there. a bit of a health pro emergency yeah. last, in the last. Anyway, week, there was so. a wonderful line in there um, by Henry Grunwald's widow. And Henry Grunwald uh, was a yeah. famous time writer. And he said to Kissinger about the Isaacson biography, why, why are you so harsh on Walter. He wrote an even-handed biography. And Kissinger said, who gave him the right to be even-handed? <laughs> That's great. Did uh, you ever meet him? You know, I never met him. I was in the White House in the West Wing, and he was sitting on the couch waiting to see the president. And I'd written my first book on intellectuals in the American presidency, and you know, I had a lot of Kissinger in there. And I didn't introduce myself, and I always kicked myself for not doing that. I've met him a couple of times, and he was always, you know, he, he's, he's gracious and Till the very end, a hundred percent there mentally, which is a, a great feat as well to go to live to a hundred and to be writing books and totally coaching incredible, you know. And to be hundred percent mentally and beat Henry Kissinger is even the next level. Yeah, exactly. And the weird thing, I mean, by the way, I just will end it on this. Don't take that for granted. I mean, whatever I'm I'm Gore Vidal always had had this kind of sinister politics, but you know, at the end of Gore Vidal's life, the last ten years, he was a nine eleven truther last however many years that i don't know how many years but the, the end of his life he was a 9-11 truther you can find this a lot that like you know over the you know great writers will kind of hurdle 
So not, not Kissinger. Yeah. Kissinger never curled. He was always brilliant. He always had a great quip and, you know, he was, he was very thin skinned in some ways from criticism for others, but he was also self-deprecating in a, in a funny way. So, well, there was also, there's also, we should say he invented something that I think has been, uh, was probably a negative part of his legacy, which is the idea that senior foreign policy officials leave government and then take jobs as consultants of foreign governments. I'm not suggesting that Henry Kissinger was not patriotic or somehow, but there was something, you know, a little sleazy about that when it came to China, as we learned more and more about how China was, you know, very much of an adversary. And so, you know, and, and that was always a bit of a black box about what Kissinger and Associates exactly were doing in these contracts and what it, what it, what it meant and did it, did it, what it meant to him as a, you know, did it compromise him as a public intellectual in some ways? And I think those were all fair and legitimate questions. Yeah. But I think with the, the Kissinger associate stuff, I think Kissinger truly believed that there was this path where China would be a good Oh, certainly on China, but I'm saying he was also somebody who would, who would meet with Putin and he, you know, he met with a lot of people. He, he had clients of, you know, who were not exactly always our you know, it wasn't like he only took clients of people who weren't, you know, they were adversaries. And I think that the well, end, this gets back to the secrecy issue because he yeah. actually would never reveal the full list of clients. And I think there that's, was a, a that's what government why I board I'm saying, I think he had to leave. And that, that has become, by the way, the model the for a lot of these similar, like there, there was a Scowcroft and Associates. There were all these kinds of other similar models of the Kissinger and Associates. And I, you know, there's, I think, a fair point that maybe that had some of a corrupting influence maybe in our foreign policy making. That's uh, another topic, maybe. It is another topic, and I, I would love to talk about that. Yeah, we could, as well. I mean, it, I have to think about it more, but I think it's just worth noting. Tevi, this was a great conversation. A little bit more of a conventional podcast this time. We'll have you back, obviously, when we de- we dive into deeper stuff. But thank you so much for coming, and I thought it was, it was great. Thanks for taking the time. All right, thanks for having me on the Reeducation. This has been the Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.